Stanford University. Our guest today is Oliver Bast. He is an associate professor in Middle Eastern history and Persian at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. Dr. Bast was the head of the Department of Middle Eastern Studies at Manchester between September 2008 and September 2011, and he spent the academic year, past academic year, at Yale University as a visiting fellow in Iranian studies. Before joining the University of Manchester in January 2000, Dr. Bass read history in Persian at a series of universities, including the Humboldt Universität in Berlin, the University of Tehran, and Sorbonne Nouvelle Paris III, and in Bamberg. He holds a, a, a joint doctorate uh, between the Sorbonne and Bamberg. Since 2004, Dr. Bass has served on the Council of the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, BRISMUS, and in July 2009 organized the annual conference of BRISMUS at the University of Manchester. Dr. Bass's research interests include the diplomatic and political history of modern Iran, as well as the interface between historiography, politics, and cultural memory in contemporary Iran. He is the author of Les Allemands en Perse pendant la Première Guerre mondiale, 1997, and editor of La Perse et la Grande Guerre, 2002. Other publications include writings concerning the origins of the Iranian Communist Party, German-Iranian relations since 1500, as well as various aspects of the diplomatic and political history of Qajar Iran, and a recent publication, a recent uh, book chapter is Disintegrating and the Discourse of Disintegration, some reflections on the historiography of the late Qajar period and Iranian cultural memory. Currently, Dr. Bass is finishing the manuscript of a book on Iran's foreign policy and diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis the great powers during World War I and its immediate aftermath, up to 1921. Based extensively on the Iranian archival record, this study fundamentally challenges the existing interpretive orthodoxy by giving a voice to the hitherto mostly ignored Iranian protagonists of this key period in Iran's history. Furthermore, Dr. Bass is embarking on a new research project which is tentatively entitled The Performance of Power and the Power of Performance, an Investigation into the Role of Secular, secular Ritual, Ceremonial, and Celebration of the emergence, for the Emergence of the Nation State in Iran, which intends to look at the nexus between ritual, ceremonial, and festivity on the one hand, and power on the other. The title of his talk tonight is Iran's Wilsonian moment, Iranian responses to World War I, 1914 to 1921. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dominique, for this very nice introduction. Uh, I uh, would like you, uh, all of you, uh, would like to thank you for coming along tonight. Uh, and, of course, before I begin, I would like uh, to extend my thanks to Professor Milani uh, for inviting me uh, to give a talk tonight here uh, at Stanford. It's a shame that he can't be here, uh, but uh, he told me he will carefully listen uh, and watch the recorded lecture, so I have to, to make an effort. Uh, well, as we uh, are now in 2013, uh, we are approaching the centenary of the outbreak of the First World War. And uh, there will be, of course, no shortage from next year onward in all manner of 
uh, events that will commemorate the outbreak of the war, and as we go through the years, the war will be commemorated. And uh, one thing we will hear uh, very often is the uh, much-quoted dictum uh, by George F. Kennan uh, about World War I being the great seminal catastrophe of uh, the 20th century for European history. Now, Kennan spoke about uh, European history, although I found out, actually checking him uh, just today, uh, that I have something in common with the great diplomat, historian, and author. He studied Oriental studies at Humboldt University in Berlin, but after he had done his BA in Princeton. So, uh, you know, you never learn, uh, you never stop learning, even, you know, just preparing your PowerPoint presentation, you find out interesting things. Uh, well, this is a dictum that concerns European history. Now, if you uh, look at Iran, uh, despite, you know, the rich tapestry of events and developments, fast-changing, constant, uh, uh, you know, constantly uh, you know, creating new situations in Iran uh, in that period of the First World War, the period is somehow forgotten in the historiography. You have a lot of literature that focuses on the Constitutional Revolution and the events surrounding uh, the outbreak of it and then uh, up to 1911, roughly, when uh, Schuster, the American financial advisor, is being forced out. And on the other hand, then you have a lot of literature on the rise of Reza Khan from the coup d'etat of 1921 of the Sevomes uh, <coughs> Fund uh, up to basically the coronation of uh, Reza Shah, as Reza Shah and then of the whole Reza Shah period. But that bit in the middle uh, between uh, Schuster's outing uh, and the end of the first you know, constitutional experience, if you like, of Iran uh, in 1911, and the coup d'etat, which is kind of seen as this hour zero, as this beginning of Iranian modern history, uh, the Sevomeis Fund as the, you know, the starting point of, of, of modern Iran. Uh, that bit is missing, including, of course, uh, and that's my point tonight, uh, the First World War. Uh, Erwand Abraham Yon, in his uh, famous uh, single volume history of Iran, uh, Iran between two revolutions, refers to this period as a period of disintegration, and thereby it is kind of being labeled, and this has sunk in also into the collective memory uh, of the Iranians, I would have thought, and uh, I would argue, and also, in, in, uh, of course, uh, is repeated in, in, in historical works. So it's a kind of a strange period, a lot of, of, of confusion, a lot of Problems have but not really something that is much studied in its own right. As a result, we don't really know much about it. And even I have to admit there are, after having studied the period quite in some depth, there are quite a few uh, problems there in terms of what we really know. Uh, we have no clear inf uh, information about the economic impact uh, of the war on Iran. The details of all the different military developments have now been studied uh, and kind of, you know, put uh, in a proper chronological framework and uh, assessed and so on and so forth. And most importantly, perhaps, but that is obviously something that is often the case with uh, the political history, uh, is that we know very little about the impact of the war on the ordinary uh, citizens of Iran, of the ordinary Iranians, uh, 
it's very little known that, for instance, uh, the flu epidemic that uh, hit the world, if you like, at the end of the First World War, uh, ravaged Iran and killed more people than the whole uh, war impact had uh, killed in the four years before. Uh, there are other ac epidemics that break out, and there is famine, uh, to the degree that uh, various people, including uh, most notably uh, the historian uh, Maj, have argued that actually the famine uh, that ravaged Iran toward the end of the First World War could be uh, considered uh, a genocide. And uh, without really pro providing, in my opinion, conclusive evidence, Maj argues that uh, this was a uh, willfully induced uh, genocidal uh, attack on Iran by, by the British. So there are a lot of gaps there. Uh, I want to talk tonight about something that I have researched a little bit more detail, where I think I can lay claim to uh, saying that I know a little bit more about it, and that is uh, diplomatic history. Indeed, uh, I want to look tonight mainly how Iran's foreign policymakers responded to the diplomatic challenges that they faced during World War I and its immediate aftermath, direct foreign interventions, major changes in the regional environment, including the fall of two once mighty neighboring empires, the Paris Peace Conference, and the question of Persia's membership in the League. Uh, but while I'm going to focus tonight on diplomatic history, I want to still try and tr kind of uh, transcend that level of political history, diplomatic history, international relations history, and reach some wider conclusions on the place uh, of the First World War in Iranian history. And I will, uh, in the course of my talk, uh, look at a couple of themes, uh, I will explore a couple of themes to which I then will come back at the end, uh, hopefully providing some conclusions. Uh, and uh, there are four uh, issues that uh, I'm concerned with. One is the question of uh, what sort of a degree of agency uh, does Iran and the Iranians actually have in World War I? Because for those who actually remember the period or write about it, it is normally a period seen where Iran is that helpless victim of foreign power machinations where uh, the uh, various belligerent powers trample uh, on Iranians' neutrality, people lose their lives, their livelihood, and uh, all the rest of it. Uh, so to what degree is there uh, any impact, any agency on the part of the Iranians themselves? Then uh, the question of chronology uh, comes in. What do we actually mean uh, when we speak of the First World War in Iran? Uh, is it exactly the same as it is in Europe, or would there be another chronology perhaps more appropriate? And very much closely linked to this, to this issue of chronology, then comes the question of, well, is this a distinct period of time? In particular, is you know, the coup d'etat of the Sevemais Fund, the 21st of February 1921, is that this major rupture where everything starts afresh, where there's no link with what uh, happens before, or maybe we have to look at it more in a sense of uh, continuity. And finally, uh, there is the question of, uh, you know, is it possible to perhaps say something about the structural impact of the First World War on Iran 
on the level of the economy, on the level of the society, uh, and uh, of course at the level of the politics. Now, my overarching frame of reference for that whole uh, investigation here uh, is uh, provided, as you have seen in the title of the talk, uh, by the quite influential work of a scholar who has asked similar questions to mine, especially also at the political level, uh, for uh, four other countries that are quite comparable to the Iranian case, namely Egypt, India, Korea, and China. Uh, and the work in question is uh, Ares Manila's uh, The Wilsonian Moment. Now, Manila's key thesis in that book, having looked at these four distinct cases, is that for these countries, colonial or quasi-colonial countries, uh, the, the encounter with Wilsonian discourse at the end of the First World War, where the concept of self-determination uh, is dramatic, uh, a lot of hopes are being raised at the time, uh, but in all four cases, Manila concludes these hopes were uh, basically uh, completely quashed uh, and left a dramatic uh, experience in the minds uh, of the people of these countries and led to the development of a particular nationalism uh, uh, that then plays out in the, uh, in the following uh, years, the following decades, and it plays out in a way that it is confrontational towards the West, that it is you know, shaped very much by this major disappointment, this disillusionment uh, uh, with the West in particular, uh, also with the United States. And I want to also then therefore reach an overarching answer to the question, well, can we perhaps uh, put Iran in one uh, um, line with those four countries that uh, Professor Manila studied and perhaps say, well, we have a Wilsonian moment very much in the same sense as he speaks about these countries for Iran. My point of view for that uh, talk tonight is very much an Iranian point of view that I try to adopt. Uh, I'm not you know, doing uh, what has been done uh, quite often uh, and is being done quite often, even by scholars working from inside Iran, uh, writing in Persian perhaps even, namely to study what others have done to Iran. Uh, I try uh, to, uh, as much as it is possible, to try and find out what maybe the Iranians did, uh, what Iranian, in my case, foreign policymakers, tried to achieve, what they uh, conceptualized as their aims and objectives, and to what degree uh, they achieved them, or at least what they did in order to achieve them, even if they might not have been always very successful. Uh, and so, uh, therefore, also, uh, the whole uh, approach is based on uh, the Iranian archival record. Uh, I try to base myself on uh, material uh, from Iranian archives insofar as I could lay my hands on it, uh, on uh, Iranian archival documents that have been published, and there's a lot of material uh, that is being published by a whole variety of archives and also private uh, individuals that taken together uh, provides an interesting body of sources that is often not used. Uh, and uh, on top of that, I also uh, use uh, the more conventionally used uh, primary sources, namely British uh, documents, but also German, French, uh, and uh, 
American and Russian uh, archival documents and published documents in order to complement uh, my picture. But once again, I'm trying to take the Iranian point of view. So I try to, as it were, read these American uh, British, French, Russian and German documents uh, uh, against the grain uh, trying to find something out about, the, uh, out about the Iranians now when World War I broke out uh, in August 1914 Tele uh, Tehran was celebrating the city was bedecked with flags, banners, with flowers and temporary structures as you still find them today to uh, mark the uh, uh, it was the day of Sultan Ahmad Shah Qajar's formal accession to the Peacock Throne. The conflict that had just broken out in Europe seemed a far away affair. However, uh, in late October 1914, the Ottoman Empire ended the war, and now the conflict loomed dangerously close to the Iranian borders. And on the 1st of November 1914, the Shah, the young Shah who had just come to the throne, uh, declared Persia's neutrality to the world. Uh, but as uh, is known and as was to be expected, uh, this did not prevent Iran from becoming the, battle for, uh, the battleground of the Great War. Uh, Persia had to endure several incursions by Russian, British, and Ottoman troops. In 1915, as well, a group of German agents arrived in the country, uh, forging links with regional strongmen, with tribal chiefs, and with the mostly pro-German Swedish commanders of the Iranian government uh, gendarmerie. In places like Hamadan, Isfahan, Kerman, Shiraz, and in the hinterland of the port of Boucher, this handful of Germans managed to achieve some eye-catching, uh, but ultimately short-lived successes. Initially, the German legation in Tehran was the headquarters of all these activities, and in the autumn of 1915, the Germans in the capital came close to dragging Iran into the war on the side of the Central Powers. They were on the verge of moving the government and the Shah to uh, German-controlled Isfahan, there just uh, south of Tehran, uh, and have them declare war on the Entente powers. But due to the amateurish execution of this plan, the German plan was betrayed, which led exactly 97 years ago to this day on the 15th of November 1915 to what was known or what would become known in Iranian history as the Mohajarat. Russian troops started to march toward the capital from Razvin uh, and a great number of influential nationalist politicians and members of parliament fled Tehran. First uh, for Qom uh, and then for Kerman Shah. From there they found themselves driven out into the Ottoman Empire only to return in 1916 uh, in the wake of an Ottoman counter-offensive into western Iran. Uh, and uh, for a few months they formed an anti-allied Iranian counter-government in the zone that was under uh, the occupation of the Ottomans. Uh, in the meantime, however, Tehran, which had now been cleared virtually of all pro-central power elements, found itself being pushed to come to terms with the Allies. By the summer of 1917, after a new Russian offensive in the northwest and after the deployment of a British levy force in the south of Persia, the so-called South Persia Rifles, the SPR, uh, led by Major General Sir Percy Sykes, 
the country seemed to have succumbed finally to the control of the Entente powers. But in November 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution intervened and the new Russian government in Moscow, to which it moved quickly, withdrew from Iran and proceeded to revoke all unequal treaties and agreements that the Tsarist Russian government had imposed on Iran. The regional balance of power looked once again quite different. It's indeed hard to do justice to all the various and complex developments in and around Persia during the early years of the war in just a few sentences. Uh, and I sometimes think this should become a, a major series, you know, a, a television series. There's so much drama there that you could put in. You know, it would be really the ideal uh, historical drama. Uh, or if not that, a feature film is also uh, something that one could imagine. But in any case, uh, I tried to just draw out some of the major lines there. Uh, one thing I want to note, however, and that is that despite all of these interventions, and despite the fact that the government in Tehran uh, on various occasions could be said to be not more than like the mayor of Tehran, they couldn't extend their power really very much beyond uh, the capital, despite that uh, the uh, covenants that uh, came one after the other in Tehran, were somehow able to maintain the appearance, the appearance of Iran as a however limited but somehow functioning independent state while a working and contrary to what one might believe quite professional bureaucracy kept the governmental business going. Not least, or perhaps one should say for the purposes of our talk tonight, especially as far as diplomacy and foreign policy was concerned. And throughout the war, this Iranian foreign policy, and uh, I argue there was one, uh, which of course many people uh, would deny, this foreign policy was shaped profoundly by the perception that the current conflict was something without precedent in the then uh, known history. It was a worldwide war, uh, a war that was going to be followed by a peace that would, not, would establish nothing less than a new world order. And this unique geostrategic situation, especially toward the end of the war, seemed to offer to the Iranians a chance to win the peace without having to win the war. Thus, the Iranian diplomacy very closely monitored the various peace aims, uh, various peace initiatives that were mooted in 1916 and in early 1917. Uh, after the Russian Revolution of March 1917, and uh, more importantly, after the entry of the United States into the war, the country where many of these peace initiatives had initially uh, been coming from, uh, the question of peace was even more uh, something that the Iranian foreign policy makers concerned themselves with. Uh, they were more and more concerned with the question that we need to be ready when peace is being negotiated in order to make our own case heard, in order to be part and parcel of this new world order that is being drawn up. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, the aim is that uh, one would for once uh, and forever enter into a situation where Iran would be no longer a question, where the question mark behind the Persian question would be removed. Uh, and one of the initiatives that is quite telling in this regard is uh, the establishment in the summer of 1917 of an interministerial commission for the assessment of the war damages that Iran had seen until then. The Commissioner Tayine Chesorot,
that began to work in Tehran and in the provincial capitals uh, in uh, 1917. And here the aim was, of course, uh, to be able to have a register of damages that one could argue had been established in a systematic fashion uh, in order to gain access to the deliberations of the major peace conference that was generally anticipated for the time that the hostilities would have stopped. Important here is, of course, that the Iranians were officially neutral uh, so they needed a reason to gain access uh, to any peace conference, and the hope was that one could do this by pointing out, well, that one had been very much a battlefield of the Great War, much more than many other countries like Peru, for instance, that were actually official uh, belligerents. So having prepared for peace systematically, and that is uh, evident in the toe and fro of the diplomatic conference, uh, com uh, diplomatic correspondence that I've studied, since at least 1917, the Persian government was able to react quickly once the hostilities had indeed ended uh, in November 1918. And only two weeks after the armistice, the Prime Minister, Emirza Hassan Khan Busukodule, who had become Prime Minister once more in, 1918, in August 1918, presented the three major powers uh, with an oil point uh, memorandum uh, asking for Persia's admission to the peace conference that would, uh, of course, happen after this uh, and uh, stipulated the Iranian demands. But the Iranians didn't even waste any time waiting for the reaction of the different uh, victorious powers to their demand. They put together their conference delegation, and the speed and the determination with which the Iranians pursued their goal began to embarrass the French and to annoy the British. Both told the Iranian government explicitly to refrain from sending anyone to the Paris Peace Conference. Lord Curzon, who was in the acting foreign secretary and who was uh, the largely unchallenged main architect of, Iran's, uh, of Britain's Iran policy, envisaged striking a swift bilateral and largely exclusive deal with the Iranians. Nothing could be more harmful to this objective than Iran's admission to the forthcoming peace conference. Hence, the Foreign Office decided to obstruct Iran's way to the conference table as much as possible. Nevertheless, on the 17th of December 1918, the very day that the Foreign Office finally, after uh, some deliberation, had come up with that strategy, uh, the Iranian peace delegation made its way uh, to Paris. It was led by uh, the Foreign Minister Ali Khan Moshevara Mamolek, and uh, the delegation arrived in Paris uh, roughly a month later, uh, in uh, the middle of January 1919. Now, the eight-point memorandum that the uh, Iranian government had submitted to the three major victorious powers, to the United States, to France, and to Britain, was only, if you like, the skeleton of the Iranian aspirations uh, for peace. Uh, in order to beef this framework now up with concrete demands, the Persian prime minister charged an inter-ministerial commission with defining Iran's peace aims. So what happens is uh, that we see the Iranian government of the time doing something uh, that is quite similar to what the United States government does with their inquiry. They put together a, couple of, uh, a number of experts that does a systematic and uh, analytical assessment of the situation to provide the Iranian peace delegation at the conference with a program. 
Uh, and the head of this um, commission, Mohamed Ali Fururi Sokoe Mark, submitted the uh, conclusions in December 1919, and they would become the formal instructions of the delegation. Five major peace aims can be clearly uh, distilled from that, uh, and they come back uh, ever uh, and ever again uh, in whatever documents you see being uh, submitted. The complete independence and sovereignty of Persia as a fully recognized member of the international community of sovereign states to be guaranteed by some sort of formalized multi-power approval. The international and once again somehow formalized recognition of the territorial integrity of Iran uh, and this favorably with some territorial gains, namely in the Caucasus, in Transcaspia uh, and in Kurdistan at the expense of the Russian and uh, the former Russian and Ottoman empires. And here you see a map that uh, is part of the uh, material that uh, Fururi's Peace Aim Commission had elaborated. And you see there in red uh, the demands uh, that uh, the Iranians made uh, under the medium-term uh, program of uh, territorial demands. The Commission of Sokol Moik had three programs, a maximum program which was basically unrealizable, uh, undoing the Treaty of Turkmenistan and the Treaty of Golestan, getting large chunks of Afghanistan and of the Ottoman Empire, and then various smaller uh, ambitions, and this is the medium ambition here in that slide. Uh, the Iranians also wanted reparations for the damages. Uh, they wanted uh, a revision of the economic treaties uh, in place and a certain degree of economic independence. Uh, and they wanted to attract multi-power support for their uh, for a, a program of, if you like, modernization, financial and administrative and uh, military aid, uh, as well as loans, and the transfer of know-how and uh, of infrastructure building projects. Now, while the Peace Conference uh, looked as a wonderful uh, and uh, relatively promising uh, venue for the realization of those aspirations, it is clear that the Iranians could not overlook the balance of power closer to home. And here, Britain is the dominating power, with the Russians having uh, moved out of the picture and with the Ottoman Empire also out of the picture. Britain occupying uh, with uh, different uh, units various parts of uh, the country, and also through various subsidies keeping the country basically administratively afloat. Uh, but that does not mean that uh, the Persian Prime Minister at the time became uh, now, as a, has been uh, often portrayed, the obedient executive agent of the Foreign Office. Uh, and therefore also, the offer that the Prime Minister makes to the Iranian, uh, to the British, very much in parallel to sending off his uh, Foreign Minister to the Paris Peace Conference, namely the offer to negotiate and to see whether one could reach some sort of an agreement, is not uh, an attempt to stab Moshe Varum Amalek in the back, and that is also very clear from the correspondence between the two that I have analyzed. No, uh, it is, uh, it is a, uh, an attempt by uh, the Prime Minister to open up 
a second front, to have a second uh, option open in case uh, the uh, Paris negotiations don't go anywhere. And they are basically also mutually uh, linked to one another. And it's also therefore the, nobody else than the Prime Minister himself who, once the delegation is in Paris, gives them a clear-cut instruction to make as much noise as possible and to do whatever they can to get access to the conference table. And that led to a flurry of activities by the uh, Iranians in Paris. Uh, they particularly concentrate their effort to court the American delegation. So they meet President Wilson, who has arrived by that time in Paris. They uh, link up with the, foreign, with the Secretary of State Lensing. They court the great eminence of the American delegation, Colonel House. Uh, and uh, there is a flurry of other uh, diplomatic activities and also propaganda activities. There's an, there's an attempt to influence the French press as well, and so on, in a typical fashion of the time, uh, in order to get uh, Persia, which is technically as a neutral, not uh, admitted to the conference table, still a place up there uh, when uh, the peace is being negotiated. Uh, they submit their formal uh, uh, claim for admission on the 23rd of March 1919 in a very uh, long and hefty uh, tome. Uh, and make basically a lot of noise in Paris. At the same time, the government in Tehran instructs the representatives of Iran in the various areas that are considered to be territorial claims, i.e. in Transcaspia and in Caucasia, especially in Nakhichevan, but also on what is now Azerbaijan, they instruct the uh, Persian representatives, the consuls and vice-consuls and uh, gozars and so on in those regions to make sure that the local population would flood the British, French and American embassies in Tehran with appeals and letters wishing to come home into the Persian homeland. In other words, they try to really play to the discourse of the self-determination of, of uh, the people and uh, engineer that sort of a, uh, of a, a perception uh, amongst the diplomacy of the great powers. And uh, it is interesting that these loud diplomatic noises that the Iranians make in Paris, which uh, lead the American president to put the Iranian case on the table several times in the deliberations with Clemenceau and Lloyd George, that they prove an excellent tool in the hands of the prime minister to put his British interlocutors in Tehran under pressure. By haunting uh, Kirks and Curzon uh, with the specter of an admission to the conference, Rousseau was able to force the British, who wanted to forestall any such admission by a speedy separate agreement, to take a conciliatory approach to his own proposals. And if we take a closer look at what Moshe Amalek, the head of the Iranian delegation, submits in Paris to the peace conference, and what Wusu uh, proposes to Sir Percy Cooks in Tehran uh, for an agreement, there is a congruence of a number of points. So in a way it's the, like two sides uh, of uh, the very same coin. Uh, 
that is being uh, pursued. One could argue that the better option is, of course, the peace conference, and uh, the option number two, if you like, plan B, is to get the same or at least a certain amount of the same claims through, through an agreement with the British. And the double game that the Prime Minister plays is nowhere better illustrated uh, uh, when he uh, gets, uh, makes a desperate appeal to the French government for help. What happened is that in Paris, despite the noise that the Iranians make, uh, and despite President Wilson putting the efforts uh, and the demands of the Iranians several times on the table of the, of the negotiations, things don't really move anywhere. Uh, and uh, there is a danger that, uh, the, that the President uh, of the United States will leave the conference without actually the Iranians having achieved access. Uh, the Prime Minister in Tehran had tried several times to get uh, messages conveyed to his counterpart in France, the Prime Minister Clemenceau. Uh, this has somehow not really worked. And on 23rd of June 1919, uh, Boussouk basically decides to put his cards on the table. He gets a meeting with the French minister in Tehran and says, listen, I am negotiating with the British. I'm on the verge of concluding uh, a separate agreement. If you do not step in, if you do not uh, support my delegation in Paris so that we can be included into any arrangements that are being made by the peacemakers with you, the French, with the Americans and the British, of course, well included. Uh, if you, in other words, do not help me, then I will have to conclude with the British, and I can't imagine that you uh, uh, nor the Americans would like Iran uh, concluding a separate agreement uh, with uh, London. However, the French uh, turn a deaf uh, ear to these demands, and there's fear in Paris that what is, of course, really the case is that they are being played off by the Iranians against the British. Uh, and then the peace conference comes to an end, uh, for temporarily, that is, with the conclusion of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, Wilson heads home. The question of the Oriental uh, issues hasn't yet even been discussed, so the whole uh, Ottoman Empire peace has not yet been really uh, the subject of the negotiations. And only when, basically, the momentum isn't there anymore in Paris for the time being. Vusuk uh, makes uh, an agreement with Sir Percy Cox in Tehran, lest that the terms that he has prom uh, proposed himself uh, are being hardened on the, times, uh, on the part of the British. And the treaty is very well known. It consists uh, of uh, three parts. Uh, and the first two parts are very well known, but there's a supplementary agreement which is usually overlooked, and that is something that Boussouk had been very keen uh, to negotiate into this treaty, and that is a ex an exchange of letters between him and the uh, British minister in Tehran, uh, where the British declared their readiness to support reasonable Persian territorial claims, and they also declared their readiness to support Iranian, the Iranian request for reparations, uh, as well as to help the Iranians to get a revision of all, their, of, all uh, of Iran's international treaties. Now, the British uh, word that rather vaguely, but still one can forgive the Iranians for believing that with that agreement now, part number three, they have in the British a backer 
who will support the Iranian claims at the ongoing peace conference. The peace conference is not over. There's been a, a moment of, of you know, a dullness there with Wilson having gone with the first treaty being signed, but the other treaties still have to be signed, especially, of course, the whole of the Middle East is not yet decided. There's not yet peace with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and if we look actually at the actual agreement, and if you look what the Prime Minister himself proposed in April uh, 1919, at the time when he specifically also ordered the delegation to make maximum noise uh, in Paris, then we see that at least five of these eight principal uh, goals that were in the initial submission are there for the Iranians. And in a way, uh, then it is uh, clear that this resembles what has been put forward in Paris, and it resembles the overall plan of the Iranian peace aims very much. But there is one uh, fly in the ointment. It is a bilateral agreement, and it gives, of course, no matter what one wants to say, Britain quite a preponderance in uh, the uh, Iranian situation. And in that sense, it is interesting uh, what happens next. Of course, there is a massive outcry. The French uh, and the American press and also the diplomatic circles uh, go into complete uh, overdrive uh, and accuse the British to basically trying to establish a protectorate in Persia. <coughs> this international uh, condemnation is then being picked up by the press in Tehran and there's a major campaign against the Prime Minister uh, in uh, the Persian public opinion as well, where this uh, agreement is being denounced as a sellout to the British. Uh, the uh, full extent of the French uh, hostility to the agreement becomes uh, uh, visible to the cabinet when uh, the new foreign minister is being sent to Paris to continue and to London to continue the negotiations, and that uh, is uh, Prince Firouz, uh, who uh, rides back to Tehran and explains what is going on, but is not, as some people have said, completely crestfallen and completely disillusioned. But he says, "Okay, fine. Now we have that hostility. We need to use that to extract more." Uh, concessions from the British. We need to put the British under uh, pressure and saying you need to be more clear in, in, in stating to the world that, that this is not a protectorate and that you are supporting us at the peace conference, which is of course uh, continuing. Uh, and uh, Wusuk himself goes once again to the French minister in Tehran and says, listen, I told you so. Uh, I told you that I was at the verge of such an agreement. Now your government is making a massive noise about this. Uh, okay, very well. Make even more noise. The more noise you make and the more the Americans make might allow us to unravel this whole thing and then we can look together uh, and finally get a multi-power situation uh, for Iran's demands uh, in terms of its security and also in its modernization program. So there is no, uh, you see, there's no vettedness to this as a particularly a special program on the part of the Iranian foreign policymakers. It is, as I said, the second best solution, but if something better can be gotten, they are willing to pursue this. In any case, things seem to calm down in the autumn, uh, and it looks like, uh, to a certain degree, that uh, the uh, Iranians are actually finally getting somewhere. Uh, on top of this, there is also something rather promising looking going on 
in uh, the negotiations that happen with the Azerbaijani delegation at the peace conference in Paris. And these negotiations are led by Sokol Moik, who, uh, uh, who is part of the delegation in Paris. And they uh, finally look as if it would be possible to get at least some of these territorial claims with regard to Azerbaijan being realized. Uh, in December 1919, the Republic of Azerbaijan and Iran conclude a protocol over the creation of a federation between the two states, which is the first step towards uh, a reunification between Azerbaijan and Iran. Uh, and uh, in order to check what is really going on, the uh, Prime Minister sends to uh, the Caucasus his special envoy uh, who is uh, to negotiate with the uh, government in Baku the final terms of this confederation and then also is supposed to go on to Tiflis and to Yerevan to negotiate uh, uh, the uh, new relations with uh, Iran as well. Uh, and the mission uh, is headed by a very close associate of Vusuk, uh, who had served him already throughout the war as a go-between and an and, and informant, uh, behind diplomatic scenes, namely Oraziyat Ziyadin Tabo Tabo'i, who uh, makes his way to Baku, uh, and uh, the Iranians, of course, believe that the Azerbaijanis are so keen to come to terms with them because they fear the Russians and think the Iranians at least have the protection of the British, and in order to uh, avoid being swallowed up by the Bolsheviks, uh, it would be uh, better to come to terms with the Iranians. However, uh, as the year 1919 turns into the year 1920, uh, a lot of the uh, illusions maybe that the Persian foreign peace policy makers might have had about the value of the treaty with the English basically uh, turn, uh, become apparent and uh, a massive disappointment sets in uh, because the Iranians realize that the British are not supposed uh, to help with access to the peace conference. The British are not willing to help Iran even get minimal territorial claims through. Uh, Curzon basically, when he's presented with the map that I just shows you, laughs in the face of Prince Firuz and says, you know, what are you expecting? Are you expecting that we go and capture these territories for you? Of course, Firuz says, no, we want this to get recognized. Uh, and then, you know, there will be a time when we are strong enough that we can perhaps then use what has been set by the peace conference uh, and um, make these claims. Nothing of this comes through, uh, and the Prime Minister really sends a massively uh, disenchanted uh, memo to his uh, foreign minister in, in London saying, if this is the value of this uh, agreement, then I don't find, uh, feel in any form or shape bound by it. And in any case, the British must understand that there is no exclusivity in this deal. Uh, and uh, by the end of 1919 and early 1920, we see the return on the part of the Iranians to a multi-power policy. They make efforts uh, to come to terms uh, once again with the French and the Americans. Busuk gives the special mission uh, in Baku a clear-cut uh, uh, instruction to reach uh, terms. 
he had hold back uh, because he thought maybe the British could achieve something for him on, on that account. Uh, at the peace conference, the Iranians are trying to get uh, into the negotiations over the fate of the Ottoman Empire and in actual fact become part and parcel of the Treaty of Sèvres in August 1920, where Persia is being considered one of the countries that will have a say uh, what uh, is going to happen uh, with uh, with Kurdistan. And on the other hand, they make now a major effort also uh, about something that is very much uh, against any British uh, wish and desire, namely to come to terms with Soviet Russia. And it is nobody else than the Prime Minister uh, Busuko Dole who starts the uh, initiative to come to terms with the Soviets behind the back of the British and ex against the explicitly stated wishes of the British, uh, who he basically uh, uh, ignores. He gets rid uh, by Nouruz of 1920 of one of his rivals in the cabinet, who he considers the true man of the British, and that is Soremo Dole, the finance minister. And once he's out of the out of the uh, out of the cabinet, he. Uh, approaches uh, the Soviet government uh, and proposes nothing less than coming to terms and uh, conclude a treaty. The British get wind of this and then Wusuk turns around and says, nothing of the sort has happened, we have no intention of doing anything like it, but the reality is uh, you know, sort of like Walter Ulbricht, who says uh, in 1961, nobody has the intention of building a wall, a wall in Berlin, and then a week later he builds it. Uh, uh, and in the same sense, Wusuk uh, extends his hand to the Soviets uh, uh, and uh, is willing to conclude a, uh, an agreement. At the same time, uh, unfortunately, uh, the negotiations in Baku although having re, uh, really uh, resulted in a uh, treaty between uh, Iran and Azerbaijan are completely overtaken by the, uh, by the Soviet army marching down uh, into the Caucasus. And in April 1920, Baku uh, is being taken over by the Bolsheviks. And this whole carefully negotiated treaty uh, that the Seyed had uh, agreed with the Mossavat government in Baku uh, becomes that letter. But the mission wasn't uh, for nothing, and it is uh, really interesting to see uh, when you study the correspondence between the Seyed in Baku and the central government in Tehran, at what level of sophistication uh, the Iranian diplomacy operated at the time, despite, you know, having basically control of nothing much in Tehran. They behave like a great power, basically. Uh, in any case, so the uh, Baku falls, the Russians uh, move closer, and uh, the problem is that uh, despite very uh, promising negotiations, uh, in uh, May 1920, the Red Army lands in Iran. Uh, they occupy parts of the Caspian province of Gilan, and they declare the Socialist Soviet Republic of Persia in a very unlikely coalition between the Bolsheviks and the Jangali uh, of Mirza Kuchek Khan. Now, it seems as if this would be the end of it, but once again, the Persian uh, foreign policymakers are able to turn a challenge, uh, are able to turn a, 
a danger into opportunity. You know, that old dictum that a crisis is harboring danger as well as opportunity, they seem to have understood very well. And they pursue a double strategy. On the one hand, they try to negotiate with the Soviets behind the scenes. And on the other hand, the Iranian prime minister instructs his foreign minister, who is still sitting there in Paris, uh, to take the Soviet invasion to the League of Nations. Iran had been admitted to the League of Nations uh, uh, in the context of the Treaty of Versailles, but the membership of Iran in the League was still hanging in the balance because, for instance, the French government was unwilling to accept that Iran could ever be a member of the League. The French were arguing, you are a protectorate. You are basically a British colony after the 1919 agreement. How can you be part of the, of the League? So Iran still hadn't consummated, as it were, uh, the membership of the League. Uh, now the opportunity presents itself. Iran is the very first country to ever present any formal claim and complaint to the League of Nations in the spring, in June 1920. It is also the very first country to bring a claim to the UN uh, when it is formed in 1945, uh, but that is a different story. Uh, and uh, I can't go into the details. The British and the French have done everything they could to obstruct uh, the Iranians from bringing their case. Curzon is actually chairing the meeting of the League and is trying to throw out the Iranian case. Beforehand, the French had clearly said, you have no right to be there because you are not uh, really an independent state. Uh, finally, uh, despite all of that, Firouz, who is the main negotiator in Paris uh, and in London where these meetings actually take place, is able to bring the claim uh, and a solution, a resolution is being passed uh, on the 16th of June 1920. And that is the first resolution of the League of Nations about such a complaint. And it is for the first time also that Iran is part and parcel of uh, the a decision by an international body where it is not about Iran, you know, like the 1907 uh, convention, but where Iran is actually a fully-fledged voting member. And if Iran uh, does not give its consent, this resolution would not pass. Now, uh, on the surface, the resolution doesn't amount to much because the resolution basically says, again, try and talk with the Soviets because the Soviets are not member of the League. Uh, and uh, therefore, those very few people who know about this have thought, well, what a ridiculous demarche that the Iranians made there. Were they not aware that the League couldn't do anything about it? But if you read, actually, the correspondence between uh, the two main architects of this, namely the Prime Minister in Tehran and uh, the negotiator in London, namely Firuz, you see that they were absolutely aware of this. For them, it was a question of actually bringing this to the League, for actually sitting at the table with all the other League powers and actually being a voting member of a resolution that is being uh, voted by the international organization of the time, by the very new international organization of the time that is the League. Is the League. And of course, uh, they understood very well what I uh, see in this, namely a litmus test uh, for Iran's status as a sovereign member of the international community. Uh, and by doing this and by pushing this through against the 
brave objections of the British, of the French. They consummate, as it were, Iran's membership in the League, which makes it, of course, much more difficult in the future to call into question Iranian uh, independence and sovereignty. Towards uh, the end of uh, the, pres the premiership of Wusuk, uh, there is a problem, however. This is something that I, uh, looking at diplomatic correspondence, which at the time, of course, was secret, you know, can deduct from uh, uh, an analysis of the sources. Public opinion did not give the prime minister any credit. And when, uh, the, uh, when he had the conflict with the Shah, uh, he is basically pushed to one side uh, and um, very unlamented, of course, by uh, the Iranian public opinion at the time. There's only one person who actually understood, in a way, quite uh, indirectly what happened, and that is uh, Bahar, uh, who was uh, at the time, of course, an ally of Wusuk and also supported the agreement in his newspaper. He writes in the Tariqa Ahsab CRC that uh, in a very little noted uh, reference to this event, that Wusuk was basically cast to one side by the British, which is not exactly true because it is the Shah who dismisses him, because he, had the, uh, he was uh, basically challenging the British and had uh, the impertinence of trying to approach the Russians. Well, this is, of course, kind of putting it into a nutshell, that is exactly what it is. He is not the uh, executive agent of uh, the British who does what they are telling him, and uh, therefore, of course, is also not uh, being supported uh, toward the end. Uh, so there's a kernel of truth in that interesting assessment by Bahar. Uh, it is interesting that it is others now who actually bring the intended uh, peace aim structure uh, to fruition, even without Wusuk no longer being at the helm. Uh, and it is uh, Moshiro Dole's government and then uh, the government of the Sepahdor who uh, continue uh, with one um, uh, major uh, initiative that is actually the started uh, by Wusuk and of which Wusuk is the intellectual father, and that is coming to terms with the Soviets. At the same time, there's also various attempts to bring in American interest into the northern oil to uh, use uh, an American oil company, the Standard Oil of New Jersey, as a counterweight uh, to the uh, British company, the Anglo-Persian oil company, uh, and of course, at the same time, uh, the negotiations with the French continue as well. Uh, Moshe Varamamolek, who we had been seeing negotiating in Paris, is once again uh, the linchpin of all of this. He's being sent to Moscow to negotiate a treaty with the Soviets, uh, which um, he does. Uh, and this treaty... Uh, can say a lot about it's coming about, but uh, this treaty, which is of course something that had been foreseen already by roughly no rules of 1920, uh, uh, is being signed on the 26th of February 1921. That is five days after the Savoma is fund, five days after the coup d'etat. And in the kind of perception of most onlookers who care about this, even if it's not explicit, even in the secondary literature, if you look at you know, single-volume histories of Iran or if you look at 
books on the history of the Middle East which refer to Iran. Because it happens after the coup, it is kind of being seen as the first sensible thing that the new regime does. The regime, uh, of course, which is at that time the regime of Sayyid Ziyar, but which again then in the long uh, run and with looking from, you know, with hindsight becomes the new regime of Reza Shah. It becomes the regime of, you know, of the new era, if you like, of this new hour uh, uh, zero that starts on the Sevomais Fund, which is the beginning of the Reza Shah period. Uh, as I uh, so far understand from the primary sources, the government in Tehran, i.e. the Sayyid, let alone Reza Shah, didn't even know that the treaty was being signed. There was no instruction uh, reaching Moshe Valmamolek. Actually, uh, the Sayyid heard about this from the French uh, telegraph uh, and then cables uh, and say, do we have a treaty with the Soviet Union or with Soviet Russia as it is then? Uh, it seems that Moshe Ver acted uh, on its own uh, uh, basically account when he saw the, when he heard about the coup. Uh, but of course they then go and run with it. Uh, so in my argument is therefore that the 22nd, 26th of February 1921, the signature of the Soviet-Iranian uh, treaty is the end of the First World War for Iran and it is also in many respects for the nation-state becoming of Iran uh, far more important than the coup uh, that happens five days earlier because it is with that treaty with also on the other hand any question mark about Iran's uh, independence and sovereignty at least at the formal level I'm not talking about the, the dependency on, 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 on the economic side and, uh, and various other but uh, at the formal level basically Iran as a state is stable. It is recognized and it can't be really wiped off of the map. It is no longer a question. Uh, so the, you have the hardening, if you like, of the Iranian realm. Uh, the hardening of the border has taken place by that time. Uh, and then someone can now then finally start and do the domestic reform, the domestic modernization agenda, which is an agenda that is basically you know, hanging over from the days of the Constitutional Revolution, if not from those reform attempts of the 19th century. But my argument is, and I'm arguing here for the primat of uh, the, the primat der Außenpolitik, as they say in German, the primacy of foreign policy. Uh, you have to have that hardening of the realm, you have to have that sort of frame to be there first before you can actually successfully tackle all the other things that are then being tackled, of course, in an authoritarian reform program which is pushed through by Reza Shah and uh, a lot of you know, the people who were once uh, in the constitutional movement. Uh, and I argue, of course, that one could say that uh, all of these... Uh, developments that led to that situation you know, are somehow the conjecture of the balance of power and developments that take place north and east and west of the border of Iran and that it somehow all fell into place. Uh, and there's a lot of truth in that. But I argue uh, someone needed to see these opportunities, especially in these crisis moments when you have the Soviets moving in, still to have the nerve not to just sur to surrender, but to take it and to actually turn this into the 
opportunity to consummate, as it were, Iran's membership in the League of Nations, the nations, the international organization of its time. Uh, so I argue uh, that you need to look at the individuals. You need to look at the agency of the Iranians. And I argue that uh, you know, even if there's all manner of, of weaknesses and interventions, the foreign policymakers of the time uh, were uh, A, quite professional, B, uh, quite clever in, in exploiting all of these little opportunities and, of course, doing what uh, Iranian foreign policymakers had to do, uh, uh, you know, in a time-honored fashion, namely to play off the foreign powers somehow against each other to kind of find a niche uh, for Iran to maneuver through. Uh, and to no, to no uh, you know, small degree, I would give credit here uh, for having achieved that to uh, the Prime Minister Vusukodole. This bogeyman of Iranian history, the most despised and most despised you know, hated for, uh, politician of modern Iran, in my opinion, is actually, uh, you know, due to receive uh, a reward for having steered Iran through that period from uh, 1918 up to, you know, in a way, he is also the father of the 1920 agreement uh, uh, with the Soviets. And in a way, it is he who bequeathes this kind of uh, Iran that is now at least on a formal level safe and sound to this savior on, the, on horseback that, that, that comes along and that is put on the pedestal and that is admired and, and, and seen as this wonderful uh, savior of Iran that is Reza Khan. Uh, Busuk uh, was a man of the 19th century. He didn't understand nationalism. He didn't understand the need to have a political uh, party. Uh, to have a following, and this made him vulnerable. He was a cabinet politician that fell the moment that the Shah dismissed him, especially since he had no uh, parliament that he could uh, rely on. Uh, but he uh, at least was a clever foreign policymaker uh, and, and uh, is able to achieve uh, that hardening of the Iranian realm, uh, as I argue, that made the the reform work possible that occurs later. And if we look uh, at some of these points that I looked at the beginning, uh, the question of the agency, I think I tried to explain, at least at the level of the foreign policymakers, I think you need to give them far more credit than the historiography has done so far. That is a historiography of either completely uh, 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 idealistic people that can't achieve anything, like Mushiro Dolese, uh, or corrupt uh, uh, executive agents of the British, like this, as I said, bogeyman and, and, and most hated figure in Iranian history, that is Vusuko Dole. On the question of the chronology, then, also, I already said that my argument is that the First World War in Iran ends on the 26th of February 1921. It doesn't end uh, with the armistice in, uh, on the 11th of November 1918. It does not end uh, with the uh, coup d'etat, but it ends with that formalization of Iran's uh, relation with Russia, while at the same time Iran is also a League member and no question of any protectorate is any more uh, uh, you know, permissible. Uh, and that brings me to the question of the continuity as well. I would argue very strongly, uh, and I have done this elsewhere in, in, in other contexts, but once again here, 
uh, against this our zero narrative. Reza Khan doesn't come out of nothing and all of a sudden uh, in 1921 saves Iran, brings to an end this period of disintegration to which Erwan Abrahamian refers. Uh, it is actually uh, far more, uh, you know, a, a, a continuity that has to be considered here, as it is done, of course, already very much so for the Ottoman Empire, where there is no longer that, uh, you know, belief that Ataturk is basically the beginning of everything uh, in 1922 uh, out of nothing. But, of course, uh, it still it takes uh, a lot of work to emphasize this continuity because the whole narrative that the Pahlavi dynasty had to uh, bring, not least in order to, uh, in order to claim their uh, legitimacy uh, as a ruling family, was that everything before was such a mess and such a disintegration that it needed you know, that savior of horseback to ride in, on the horseback to ride in and to sort out Iran uh, and to basically bring an end to whatever uh, bad things the corrupt politicians of the Qajar period had done. Uh, so I argue for continuity instead of our zero or rupture. Uh, if you speak about the structural impact, uh, I haven't really dwelt on this, but at least on the uh, issue of foreign policy, uh, having to go through that te taught the Iranians a lot. They learned basically how to behave on the international scene. They managed to get access uh, to the most important international organization of their time. So I would argue that the First World War was a catalyzer uh, of modernization and that uh, it was at the level of foreign policy making where I have studied it and I would argue that despite all the disruption and the death and uh, the the suffering it brings for the Iranians uh, uh, at an ordinary life level, uh, it is a catalyzer uh, for uh, the uh, Iranian um, body politic and also for the society. Uh, and in a way, it helps to bring about the changes that we see in that period of authoritarian modernization that ensues in the 1920s. Uh, and 1930s. And that brings me to the final question, and thank you for uh, bearing with me for so long, uh, namely whether we can safely put Iran uh, next to these four other countries that Professor Manila has studied and uh, made this point about the disappointment and uh, the developments that spring from uh, the Wilsonian moment for the nationalism in these countries. And I would argue not really. Uh, Iran is different. Uh, the Iranians, at least at that level of the foreign policy, do not have the trauma of the Chinese that go home from Paris with having achieved nothing and then a revolution breaks out. It's not the same as the Koreans who are sidelined. It's not like Egypt, which becomes a protectorate, uh, despite all the high hopes that the Waft uh, has when they go to Paris and also not like India, of course, uh, which doesn't uh, leave its colonial status either. The Iranians uh, are able to use the Wilsonian discourse, uh, latch onto it at that level of foreign policy, uh, and are able to turn it into something uh, that, uh, you know, secures their position at the end of this whole uh, process. 
which is no mean feat if you consider the starting point, if you consider that in 1915, uh, in, in what is known as the Constantinople Agreement, which is an exchange of various uh, understandings and, and correspondences, Iran was basically to be divided up between Russia and Britain into nothingness. So if you then think that, uh, you know, by 1921, it is a member of the League. It has a, a, a treaty with the Soviet Union that is better than anything that it had ever before uh, with its northern neighbor. And the idea of a protectorate that some people have spoken about has come to nothing. Uh, it, it's no uh, mean feat, once again, I say that, uh, in comparison to, to where they were starting from. So it might be that there was a good reason, uh, other than that Manila doesn't speak Persian, she seems to be speaking Chinese, Korean, and Arabic, and, and, and what have you not, that he left out Iran from his magisterial study. Uh, because, uh, I say it once again, for Iran, the Bersonian moment uh, is actually not as negative and not as traumatic, uh, at least at that level of high diplomacy, as it is uh, for these other four countries. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Bass. We have about ten minutes for questions. Um, please keep your questions concise and to the point and questions rather than models. Please. Well, I give credit to it, uh, uh, you know, apart from structural developments that, that are there at the level of the balance of power, to the Iranian uh, foreign policymakers, uh, most notably to the Prime Minister, Mirza Hassan Khan Vusukodole. I try to find. Uh, you can note it down. Uh, who is, uh, and that might be added once again, not very well received by the Iranians. He's considered corrupt, uh, the tool and the executive agent of the British. So I actually present him in a rather revolutionary uh, light here, trying to re rehabilitate him, at least to a certain degree. I agree. There's a large degree of uh, 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 in, in, in people who look at Iran and also at people who live in Iran, perhaps, uh, to see that whatever happens in Iran is the work of foreign powers. Das de Penhane Engelis is, uh, you know, the old age-old uh, uh, bugbear, if you like, and uh, sometimes it's the Americans or it's someone else. 
But I mean, there are, of course, politicians that are uh, very much well loved in Iran, uh, like Mossadegh, for instance, or even people at the time, like you know, one other prime minister, like Moshir Odole, or even Reza Shah, of course, who, who is kind of put on this major pedestal uh, as the savior, but uh, which is probably not without justification. But I argue that that seemingly corrupt elite of the end of the First World War wasn't actually, you know, so black uh, either and achieved, uh, or at least tried to achieve something. Please. Uh, you mentioned about Kosovo uh, uh, being dismissed by the king, but then Prince Firuz took over as a new prime minister. No, no, not as a new, uh, no. Firuz was not prime minister. He was foreign minister. And when Musuk is being dismissed in June 1920, his term as foreign minister also ends. Right. So my question is, just, did Mr. Did Prince Prius continue the same agenda as Osobodol had during, regarding negotiations, or did he have another agenda assigned by the king? He has no office, basically. When the cabinet of Vusuk falls at the end of June 1920, uh, Firuz is, of course, in, in, in Europe still, you know, and he loses his job as foreign minister, and he's basically a private person. Uh, and then he has some point, just literally days before the coup d'etat in um, uh, February 1921, comes back to Iran uh, and is being duly arrested by, the, by Sayyid Ziyar's uh, coup d'etat regime. So he is at that point a private person. Of course, he pursues all manner of economic agendas, and he also fancies himself perhaps as, as the new Reza Shah. Uh, he thinks he could be the strong man that, uh, that Reza then becomes, but nothing comes of it, uh, although he participates, of course, in the, in the new administration until he's murdered uh, by Reza Shah in 1936. Yes. Part of that is because of the nationalism, or was it because they were Western educated, or both, or combination of both? Because it sounds like they were very well uh, negotiated, but they had to learn this process of uh, negotiation. How did that come from? Yeah, one probably has to study this more, uh, and I also argue that one really has to study not so much also what I have done, what happened, but the how. So to see how long it takes, for instance, for a telegram between Paris and Tehran, and how, for instance, the deciphering of all of this. I mean, there's a lot of technicalities in the making of foreign policy that is often overlooked, even if, if in, in the writings of the foreign policy of other powers, of European and Western powers, uh, and also the, the mentality and the training of those who execute foreign policy needs, you know, should be studied. There's a whole of more work that can be done, but because for various reasons diplomatic history is not very popular, uh, it's kind of being looked down through the nose a little bit by most historians. Uh, not much is being done uh, at the moment in this field, but it might, there might be a comeback. Uh, in the case of these people, I, yeah, I think they are, of course, not regarded as nationalists. They are regarded as treacherous and, and, and corrupt. But I would argue they are nationalists. They are, uh, sometimes I argue at some point, they are proto-nationalists in the sense that their nationalism is not so much 
uh, in the typical way that it is then becoming uh, under Reza Shah, which is a nationalism that puts to the fore the Persian language and, you know, the, the, the ethnical uh, characteristics of the Persians. It is a land-based nationalism, which is basically, uh, you know, related to this concept of Iran as a territory, to Iran Zamin. Uh, and if you look at the training, I mean, the most amazing figure perhaps in this is uh, Firuz. When he goes uh, and becomes foreign minister in August 1919 and is facing Curzon, you know, this master diplomat who is already at the pinnacle of his power, who had been viceroy of India, uh, he is 29 years old, uh, which is amazing if you think about it. Uh, he did his PhD uh, at the Sorbonne, so I have something in common with him as well, <laughs> uh, in political science, although he claims and it's, it goes under law, but it is basically international law. And he wrote a thesis on the question of Oman uh, in the 19th century, which is basically an analysis of British imperialism and uh, French uh, British rivalry uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, he, there's no, I'm, in my opinion, a, a shred of doubt uh, in my mind that, that he was a nationalist. He, of course, had uh, you know, various other uh, considerations to, to, to make. He, of course, also you know, is a prince. He's a direct, you know, has a direct line to, to uh, Pajar kings and might have had hopes at various moments in time to, to raise to the throne. But, yeah, so he is extremely professional and then uh, also tries to, to live that out when he becomes uh, this chief negotiator. There's a question here. Yeah, I think that uh, when I look at your uh, uh, speech, I uh, realize that you gave a very good uh, uh, order of, of events and so on. Savior of Iran somehow uh, keep the uh, integrity and so on. Uh, I think that uh, I assume that you received my email. Uh, or did you look your uh, your emails today? No, I have no access to emails. Yeah, uh. it was about uh, the uh, the famine and all other stuff that uh, was happening at the same time, and this is. Disintegration of Iran itself uh, because of the lack of uh, uh, authority of the central government and so on. Uh, you do not uh, consider those in your analysis, and I think that they are very, very important uh, issues. And also, uh, you mentioned that Bussoulet-Dollar uh, was paid by the uh, British government, to, which is the worst that you can get out of uh, uh, a politician. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I assume that you are uh, using a lot of uh, British uh, documents, uh, which essentially uh, uh, the part which is published, not the part which are not published. 
No, I'm, let me perhaps try to answer this. You raised basically three points. You raised the issue of uh, the disintegration uh, of the country and the lack of authority that the central government has at the time. You raised the issue of uh, the, uh, the bribe, basically, that was paid to the cabinet, allegedly. Uh, and the issue of sources. Maybe let me start with the third of these, namely the sources. As I tried to say at the beginning, I try actually to use as much as possible Iranian sources. So what I have looked at is you know, the correspondence between the Iranian prime minister and the uh, delegation in Paris, first uh, under Moshe Molek. So it's also how Moshe Molek reports back uh, from uh, Paris to Tehran. Uh, and then, of course, also the correspondence between uh, Wusuk and Firuz, uh, and also all manner of other Iranian documents, uh, insofar as they either published or I could get access to them in the Sazmona Asnadimili, uh, the National Archives in Tehran, or in the archives of the Foreign Ministry in Tehran, uh, where uh, a lot of this correspondence between the Prime Minister and the delegation is being located. So. I managed in those final days of the Khatami administration to gain access to this archive, which would probably be now impossible for a foreigner to go in. So it's mainly based on these, but I also try to read the uh, other documents uh, from other countries against the grain, and they are mainly uh, published uh, and unpublished documents. I also found interesting uh, echoes of Iranian foreign policy uh, in Moscow, in the, in the Russian archives, because the Russians did one thing, they intercepted the Iranian correspondence and then translated it into Russian. And so I could basically see, uh, sitting there in Moscow, the correspondence that went back and forth between Tehran and the uh, Persian minister in Petrograd. Well, do you need to find them if you go into the archives? Uh, so that is the first point. The second point that you are making is the disintegration and the famine and the flu. Uh, you know, I have not uh, studied this, and I'm making the point, I just tried to convey that at the beginning, that it is amazing that these politicians despite basically being nothing more than the mayor of Tehran. They could not really extend their authority of, over what would be going on in Khuzestan or what would be going on in Tabriz. But still, they bestride the international scene and they kind of maintain, you know, which is, which is interesting, which is merits further study, how they manage, you know, despite these weaknesses, to sit there at the table at the League of Nations and to basically make sure that Iran becomes a member and is undeniably you know, uh, a member of the international community. Uh, so that is that. And now the question of the bribe, uh, which often comes up in that context. Uh, it's a very complex uh, uh, issue because it is not as straightforward. Uh, let me just say at that moment in time that uh, it is impossible, looking at the uh, archival evidence, both from the Iranian side, from the British, from the French, from all the different archival material that I have studied, to say that the Prime Minister did what he did because Curzon gave him a cheque uh, over uh, 400,000 Tuman. Uh, 
The money that was being paid uh, in the context of the signing of the agreement uh, is uh, something that is being paid as an advance on the loan uh, that is uh, to, uh, supposed to be paid uh, uh, as a result of the agreement, two million pounds. Uh, and the deal is that each of the three major cabinet members gets something. Wusuk gets 400,000, uh, and Firuz and Sorem get 200,000, two months. Uh, and in the correspondence, it is quite clear that the major pusher for that sort of uh, money being actually involved there is Sorem. Uh, and the, you know, it, Cox actually says it quite clearly. Uh, I must exonerate the Prime Minister uh, in this regard because he is not the one who actually pushed this. And the official version, of course, is, is that that money is supposed to oil the wheels for the agreement, which is something that they tell the British. But that's, of course, not true because they put it into their own pockets. Uh, so I'm not saying that they are saints. Uh, they they were doing something and they were trying to basically get a little bit of extra and hope. I don't know how they wanted to fudge it because the British were not giving this out of a black account that was accounted for as a, an advance on the loan. So one day when the loan comes in, uh, they would have to somehow account for it. Uh, for instance, uh, what Wuzuk does is he never touches this money. He puts it as is in shares in the Tomanyans uh, transport company. And at the moment when Reza Shah comes along and asks these people to pay that money back because it is missing in the treasury as a part of the, of the advance of the loan, he has no problem. He just gives it back like that. These uh, politicians, uh, which is interesting, especially with regards to Firuz, Firuz doesn't need 200,000 two months. The whole family, the farmer, and farmer, own family, they are so rich that this is a drop in the ocean uh, for them. So, but in any case, the person who is really making the decisions is the prime minister. And from all the archival evidence, it is crystal clear that he does not do what he does, that he does not sign the agreement at that moment in time because he received money. He is not someone who does something for money. Uh, there is ample evidence that this is the result of his foreign policy reckoning at the time. And he is the man, as I said, who shortly before signing goes to the French and says, I don't want to do that. Sorem, who is my member of cabinet, is a British spy. I'm under pressure here. Uh, please step up your role at the conference. Help us get the Americans on board. Once the treaty is signed and all hell breaks loose, he goes again to the French and says, yes, make even more noise. Uh, if you only make enough noise and if the Americans make enough noise, we can unravel this whole thing and we get something better. So it is true that this, that this money uh, is being paid, but it is not something that the prime minister did because he received money. He is not the paid executive agent of uh, the British. That is what I would like to maintain. Uh, but of course, I mean, these people are an elite. They consider themselves to be the, the masters of the country. That's why I also say they are, they are, their nationalism is paternalistic. They are not modern nationalists. They consider basically Iran as something that they own privately. But still, that doesn't preclude uh, also that they want something uh, good to come for that fiefdom that they rule. Uh, that they want modernization, that they want railway building, that they want strengthening of the army, that they are pursuing territorial gains in the Caucasus, in Transcaspia, in, uh, in the Ottoman Empire.
Uh, okay, I think I exhaust. Maybe there's another question. Yeah, please. I know. I'm very glad that I contributed to you. I'm not even making a value statement about good or bad, you know. As I said, while they were trying this, hundreds of thousands of people were dying uh, because of the flu, uh, and they couldn't, they couldn't help them. But on the other hand, in that situation that they find themselves in, no one could have helped them. And in a way, they were envisaging an Iran where maybe at some point that sort of issue would be solvable. Uh, but yes, of course, I mean, I'm portraying the, these uh, uh, elite politicians, especially Firuz and uh, Wusuk, uh, in, uh, in here and in that book that will hopefully appear in the uh, autumn uh, as the exact opposite of as what they are normally conceived of, namely as treacherous, treacherous, uh, paid executive agents of the British who did what the British tell them. But if you look at the archival evidence, if you look at the correspondence between the Prime Minister and uh, Firuz, and if you look at the memoranda that they write, if you look at the fact that uh, the Prime Minister charges, uh, you know, Sokar Imolk uh, to form a peace aim commission where the Iranians define systematically what they actually want from the peace conference, if you look at all these instances of rather professional diplomacy, uh, it is clear, and of course they are master liars. They go to the British pretending, yes, of course we do what you want, we are your people. And then th the next morning they go to the French. Uh, I didn't bring it here. There's a famous, uh, no, not that famous, but uh, rather, it should be more famous, but rather telling quote uh, from an interview that the first Soviet ambassador or minister, as it then was, uh, gives to an American journalist who comes to Iran in 1926 or thereabouts, and that is Theodore Rothstein. Rothstein is, uh, as a result of this treaty to which I alluded between Soviet Russia and Iran, is being sent uh, as Soviet Russia's minister plenipotentiary uh, in Tehran. And this uh, American journalists interviews him, and at some point Rothstein says to uh, this journalist, you say, you know, Persia is fundamentally sound. You can buy their country uh, twice over. You can, the Germans, they will sell it to the Germans today, to the British tomorrow, but they will never ever do anything for the money that they receive. Persia is fundamentally sound. And I think this uh, assessment by Rothstein really sums it up, uh, because uh, in that period, and then also later on, they gave this impression to various comers that they would do their bidding, but that doesn't mean uh, that they would actually do it. Uh, Thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.